So, um, we're gonna, we gotta, we have some work to do in Romans 4, all right? So, I want to make sure that before we leave Romans 4, there are a few things that you see and are totally clear about because what Paul is saying is absolutely radical. It was radical 2,000 years ago, and it is equally as radical today. And so I'm going to start in verse 13, but I want to tell you, I want to give you an image in your mind first, and then I'm going to read um, a few verses, and we'll just sort of walk through to the end of the chapter. But imagine this. So, so the thing about this, you have two letters. And um, one of these letters, it's on uh, beautiful stationery, you know, sort of embossed, and, you know, it's, it's, it's crisp, and it's nice, and, and, the, um, and, and the letter's been written on, and the penmanship is perfect, written with the finest ink from an expensive fountain pen. I mean, and it looks impressive. And it gets dropped into an outgoing mail, but it has no stamp on it. Then imagine sitting next to it in the bottom of the outgoing mailbox, you have another one, and it is a tattered um, uh, looking thing. It's dingy and dirty, and there's smudges all over it. It's written with a, um, a pencil on a, on a yellow legal pad. And the writing's barely legible. And yet this one gets put in there, and it has a stamp on it. And the question for you is, which one of those letters is going to be delivered? Which one of those letters is actually mail? And you know the answer. It's the one with the stamp on it. And, and it's so what you know is, it's, listen, it's, it's, it's the, 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 the beautiful one with no stamp and the one that is inferior that has a stamp. And what you realize, it is not the apparent quality of the letter that qualifies it to be mail. It's the stamp that is placed on it. And, and this is a picture of Christianity. It is not the beauty of your life that qualifies you. It's not the brokenness of your life that disqualifies you. It is whether you have the stamp of righteousness across your life. And that righteousness, Paul is saying, it can only be received by faith. You can't earn it or buy it or be worthy of it. You can only receive it. It's the only thing that makes you righteous, and it's the only thing that qualifies as Christianity. And so look, look with me. I'm, I'm in Romans 4. I'm going to start in 13. I'm going to read a couple of verses. We'll stop and talk about it, and then we'll, we'll walk through the rest. He says this. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, so here's what he's saying in, in verses 13 to 14 and 15. In verse 13, he's, he's citing, listen, there was a promise made to Abraham. This is the Abrahamic promise. This is where if you were a Jew, you would say, man, all of our roots go back to Abraham. Man, we're his people, and those are the promises. 
And these are huge promises. I mean, they're promises that there would be um, untold number of descendants, that there would be um, uh, that Abraham and his family, his lineage, they would be a blessing to the world. And, and Abraham, you, you're going to have a promised land. And so the, so the Jews throughout the history have looked back and said, man, this is our God who made this promise to Abraham. Here's where they got it wrong, though. They thought those promises... came to them or were mediated to them through the law of Moses. So Paul's saying, no, no, no. That's not how you receive. The, the law is not a conduit for the promise. It is not a conduit for the righteousness. It is not a conduit for right standing with God. Only faith can receive what God has promised. Only faith can receive the righteousness of Jesus. And so what he says is, listen, they, it's not by um, the law, because if, if, it, if it was for the law, if it was something that you could do, if it was something you could earn, if it was something you participated in, it, then the promise is null and void. A her- an inheritance is not something you can work and earn. It has to be given to you. And so what he wants them to know is, listen, you don't earn it, you receive it. And righteousness is what you need And righteousness is only received through faith. And this righteousness you get is called, you know, we talked about it last week, imputed righteousness. It's it's granted to you. It doesn't make you righteous, but it gets credited to you. So that even though, um, um, you you know, you're being transformed, you're you're, um, 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 a spiritual work in progress by the Holy Spirit inside of you, that this is not this, you're not made righteous, you're declared righteous. What is What is Jesus? Who Jesus is and all that he's done gets counted to you. And so what Paul says is, listen, you can never achieve for yourself that which God has promised. You cannot achieve for yourself that which God has has promised. You you can't depend on yourself. You can't prove yourself. You can't be worthy. Because if you do, it renders faith as nothing. In fact, it's actually worse than that. In verse 15, what it says is this is the prize that you win at the end of the law. The prize that you win at the end of all of your effort and all your self-righteousness and all your proving to God that you're worthy. It says the prize at the end of the law is wrath. There's only two choices. There's either inheritance of the promise that comes through faith, or there's, or there's wrath. You might think about it this way. You ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? If you're a parent, you probably have. Take heart. There's a day that you don't have to go anymore. But there's the game at Chuck E. Cheese, you know, where you've got the mallet, and then it, you, the alligators, they pop up out of the holes, you know, and you, what you, you, you're trying to... You're trying to hit the alligators. I mean, so that's just sort of your life under the law. I mean, that's the best that you can hope for. But worse than that, here's how Chuck E. Cheese does it. If you, if you hit enough alligators, you win these tickets. So the tickets come out of the little thing. And then all of a sudden, your kid's like, hey, if you get enough tickets, I can go get this, this thing at the, at the, at the store. And, and what you realize is, is this the biggest scam in the whole world? You end up at the, at the alligator mallet smashing thing 
um, paying 10 times worth, uh, 10 times more than anything that you're going to get in the store's worth. And so the best that you can hope for is to keep up. The best you can hope for is for those tickets to keep coming out. And yet, then you take those tickets, these worthless tickets, to trade for junk prizes. And Paul says, welcome to hell. <laughs> that's it. It's, it's wrath. I mean, that's the wrath. That's all you get. The law brings wrath. Now, notice what he says. The end of 15, I'm going to do this quick, and then we're going to get on, because, but you've got to understand. He says, where, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So what in the world does he mean by that? Well, so here's the thing. He's not saying there's not any sin. What he's saying is, is that sin hasn't been, de- a line in the sand hasn't been drawn. So, so it's like, you know this if you're a parent, you, you've got your kids and they're, and they're sort of driving you nuts and they're punching your buttons and, and yet it's really hard to like pin them down on anything they've done wrong. I mean, they haven't lied, there's no bleeding, you know, they haven't hit anybody, um, you, you know what I mean? They haven't specifically done anything you told them not to do. They're just genuine, generally being their sinful self and you say, stop it. And they say, well, stop what? What am I doing? So that's, I mean, you want to know where your parents come up with all their rules? It's those moments. And then you just say something crazy, like, don't do that. You know, and you name something, and then now you've got to keep it up. But that's when it becomes a transgression. When, it, when the line in the sand gets started. So I'll tell you about it. So you go to creation. Adam and Eve put in the garden. They're given the whole, I mean, the world is theirs. And there's one commandment. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from every other tree. You have at it. But it's this, it's this thing. So they're, they're not perfect, but they are morally pure. And, and, it, and it's this command. It's, listen, you have to believe God. So believe me, believe me. Do not eat of that. If, if you believe me and trust me, I want your very best. I want, I want what's good for you. And you'll have it. Trust me with what I've commanded you. The whole world as their privilege. One commandment. The enemy comes along as a serpent and says, did God really say that? I mean, you, I mean, you know that guy. He's not very trustworthy. He's not really looking out for you. And they buy the, they buy the deal. They eat from the tree and send and nurse the world. And you know what happens after that? They kicked out of the garden. They have two children, and one ends up murdering the other one in cold blood. And then by the time you get to uh, the, the genealogy in, in Genesis 5, you, you've seen where sin brought shame, and they try to cover it up. To You have Cain that's openly um, killing his brother. To You have this man named Lamech that's singing songs about his bloodshed. And so God shows up in Genesis 6 and says, Humanity has proven itself as sin has entered the world to be wicked and only wicked. So what he does is he judges humanity, comes out of the flood and he tells Noah, he says in in Genesis chapter 8, so here's another command. 
Because it is the intention of man's heart, it's evil. It's evil from his youth. If a man sheds another man's blood, so shall his blood be shed. You kill someone? I'm instituting uh, this, this human government to take care of that. And so now murder, now the shedding of blood is no longer just a sin. It's now a transgression that is bringing with it wrath. You know, here's what's fascinating. You trace that one command from Genesis 8 through the Bible, the next time you see it formally stated is Exodus chapter 20, and it's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. And then you go to Matthew chapter 5, and here's what's so fascinating. This is what the law does. Don't shed blood or your blood will be shed. One of the commandments for Israel is you shall not murder. And God has to say that. He has to set the law because he knows what is in the heart of man. Jeremiah uh, uh, 17, that your heart is more wicked than you possibly imagine. Desperately sick, Jeremiah says. So Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, and he says, hey, listen, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. Here's what I'm telling you. If you're even angry with your brother, if you insult, slander, if you call your brother a fool, you reveal about yourself that you have a murderous heart, a sinfully murderous heart. And what awaits you are the fires of hell. Transgression. Now it's no longer about the things we do. It's about the motive of our heart. So Paul says this, listen, if you're counting on the law, the law is not going to save you. The law comes, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good, it's this mirror, and you come and look at it, and what you see about yourself is your sinfulness. And, the, and the, it comes, and the law comes and diagnoses you. The law comes and says to you, no. And then declares you guilty. Listen, we all know this. There's a Sammy Hager that lives inside every one of us that screams out, I can't drive 55? Just think about what happens when you see a sign that says, don't walk on the grass. So you didn't even know what a sinful wretch you were when it came to transgressing grass until you saw the sign. It's like, oh, I didn't even know that wickedness was in me. In fact, one guy said, if, we, if there had been a commandment, you shall not fly we would have flown centuries earlier. <laughs> right? That's what the law does. It reveals about us what, what we're not even sure is there. And so it's like one guy said, he said, listen, here's, here's the whole point of, of this thing. Um, he says, we work hard at convincing ourselves and others, they were not that bad. But, but the truth is, we're worse than we ever imagined. And the more you push back on that, the more you push back on experiencing God's grace. If we miss the reality and the depth of our sin, the 
we will miss out on the goodness of the grace of God. One guy said it this way, if, if the biggest sinner that you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. To find ourselves crashing into the grace of God, Paul wants us to know we have to, we have to come face to face with the truth of our own sin. And so that's what the law does. But the law doesn't bring you the promise. The law can't be the conduit of the righteousness and the grace that you need. It reveals about you the condition you're in so that now by faith, not, not anything you can do, it's, it's meant to bring you to a place of totally abandoning any hope in yourself. So that by faith, we would receive what God has done through us, for us, through His Son, Jesus. It's nothing you can achieve. It can only be received. Now, this faith, this is why he says, look at verse 16. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. What he wants us to know, listen, this is open to anybody who has Abraham's faith. And he's going to describe Abraham's faith for us. He's going to tell us exactly what Abraham's faith was. So it's open to all of that. Listen, but he wants, he'll say in Galatians, Abraham's faith, his trusting of God happens 430 years before the law even is given. And, and Abraham's faith is absent. It's not, Abraham's faith is not Abraham making promises to God about what he's going to do or not do. Abraham's faith is simply believing God for what he has promised. We get into the content of his faith. If you look at verse 17 again, it says, As, I've, uh, as it is written... Now we're going to look back at, at Genesis. And in Genesis 17, he's going to quote from me. He says, I've, I've made you the father of many nations. And God says that to Abraham before Isaac is born. I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then he goes on, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. See, 100 years old, and the promise is you'll become the father of many nations. Yet the impossibility that faces Abraham is that he knows his body is aging and dying and his loins are dead and Sarah's womb is dead. And God, what you're promising is humanly impossible. So whatever it is that you're going to do, it has to be something like bringing 
life from death. It has to be speaking into existence something when there's nothing. It's what the psalmists would do when they would talk about the redemption of God. They would remember how He saved. And they would speak also about His power in creation. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, listen, what Abraham believed was a God of resurrection. A God of creation. It's not an improvement of what was there. It's the creation of something new. Jesus didn't come to make us better. He came to die so that through His death, we could die with Him. And through His resurrection, we could be raised to new life. Listen, some of you, and I know some of you are sitting there, and that whole line of thinking totally defeats you when, when you hear those words because you're saying to yourself, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm too broken. I'm too far away. I'm too messy. I'm too fickle. I, I'm too angry or I'm too sad or, or you know what you don't know I'm too hated you don't know what I've done and you feel defeated because you think what God means to do with you is some kind of a fixer upper and the reality is no you know what God wants a funeral he wants you to die with Christ He he wants you to count Christ's death as your own and then standing at your graveside speaking to you the gospel after you have been counted dead with Christ. He speaks grace and raises you to new life and you're made new. And Everything that feels hopeless to you about your humanity, God promises to do something new to save you. That's why he says in verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope. That gets me. It's we, the word we use hope, we, hope kind of comes along the category of wishful thinking. It's not what it would have meant in the Greek. You know what it meant? To hope in something would have been to be confident, to trust it, to hope, to know, you know, it's true. Even though everything I see says no, that can't be true. I believe in God who has a power that's far beyond anything we could ever know. Abraham's hope, listen, it wasn't in the strength of his faith, although his, his faith is strengthened. It's not in the strength of his body. It's not in his wisdom. It's not in all the decisions that he's going to make. His hope was in the power of God despite all those things. His hope was in the faithfulness of God. He believed that God was going to fulfill what he promised. See, I think too often believers put their hope in their own power or their own faithfulness to fulfill what they have promised God. Or promised how Uh, to God, how they're going to save themselves, all that you're going to do, whether to save yourselves or at least assist God in His saving of you. Abraham believes an outrageous promise. He believes God. In every way in which Paul is writing this, the, 
The emphasis isn't on Abraham. It's on God and what he's going to do. Now look at this. He's going to give us the nature of Abraham's faith. He's going to say three things. In verse 19, he's going to say there's no weakness of faith. In verse 20, he's going to tell us that there's no unbelief that made him waver. And in verse uh, 21, he's going to tell us that he's, that he's fully convinced. Now, I want to walk through that for a second because I, I want you to understand what Paul's doing. Abraham had no weakness of faith. Now, he says this, so when he considered, so he considered, it says, that his body was as good as dead. He was about 100 years old, and he considered the barrenness or the deadness of Sarah's womb. So, first thing to know is, listen, this word consider, it means to reason. It means to think. It, is, it means to live in the real world. It is not like faith is sometimes described as faith is believing something that you know isn't even true. That's not it. It's to reason. It's to think. It's to decide that, you know what, against all odds, against everything that tells me this can't be true, I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe that the impossible is possible with God. And it also means there was nothing that Abraham could do to bring God's promise into being. He knew it would be life from death. Something from nothing. And that's the way we need to approach our faith in the midst of what we've reasoned in our own worlds to be impossible. One old writer said it this way. He says, let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality, and we're surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us righteous. Yet we, we're covered with sins. He testifies that he's kind to us. Yet we feel the judgments of the world all around us. What's to be done? Here's what this writer says. Close your eyes and walk past all those things that you see in yourself. And set your eyes clearly on God so that you might not be hindered or prevented from believing that He is true. All right, so hang on to that. There's a weakness of faith. Look at the no unbelief. He says, uh, no, no unbelief and it's causal because of, he didn't waver because of unbelief. His unbelief didn't make him waver. That's what he's saying. It's probably a play on words. Where he's weak, his body's weak. He's going, to be, uh, he's going to grow strong in his faith, or better yet, it's passive. He's going to be strengthened in his faith. And then look at verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. Three characteristics of Abraham's faith. He did not weaken in faith. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, and he was fully convinced God was able to do what he had promised. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever read the story of Abraham? If you have, you might think, huh, I wonder if Paul ever read the story of Abraham. Right? I mean, Abraham, listen, he certainly... Certainly, most certainly without a doubt, put forward as a man of faith, the father of faith, the father of all who walk in faith. But to hear Paul talk, you'd think Abraham's faith is perfect. When the record of Abraham's life is a man who struggled with that faith, 
So I think there's several keys to unlocking that. Let's just pick one of them for the sake of time. If you look in verse 20, there is the word waver. He did not waver. Now, for all my Greek nerds out there, it's in the aorist tense. But here's what you can know about that. When you put a verb in the aorist tense, what it means is that it means it gives you a snapshot. It means it gives you a a big picture. It means it is telling you the summary of a thing, not the process of it, not the details of it. In other words, it doesn't mean to biographically chronicle all the highs and the lows of Abraham's life. The account in Genesis 12 through 22, you find Abraham does not always live what he believes. But he believed. See, he might have had moments, he did. He had moments of where he, there was this lapse of, of trust. Of course he did. And by the way, not without consequences. But in all of Abram's life, in his humanity and in his imperfection and in his flaws and in his failures and his faith though tested you know what his faith wasn't extinguished his faith survived he didn't turn away from God and 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 while his day-to-day experience may have felt like a roller coaster at times what he experienced over the course of his life was that his faith was strengthened you know what here's here's what you need to know when you read about Abraham in the, in the New Testament, which he has cited over 70 times, you do not read about his failures. You read about his faith. It is as though God buried his failures in the grave of his forgetfulness, as one guy says. And what God remembers is his faith. And it's the same with you. Listen, It happens when you walk with God through the seasons and through the years of your life and through all the freakouts and all the failures and all those moments, you know, through all of those things, you're reminded, you know what? There's a God and I'm not that God. You're also reminded, listen, God's good and He's on His throne and He remains faithful even when there are moments in my life when I am faithless Though you see in a mirror dimly, there will be a day you see face to face. Though you only know in part, Paul will say, there will come a time you'll know fully even as you're known and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God will be visible to your eyes in the face of Jesus. As you walk through through the seasons of life and the years of life, as we walk with God, though jars of clay now, we will be raised to immortality. And the more you come to know that He has promised to never leave you and forsake you, and in the moments where even it seems that you've left Him and forsaken Him. And as you walk, you'll experience these moments of feeling weaker, You'll experience these moments of feeling more dependent than you ever realized you were. 
And all the while you realize that your faith is being strengthened. And I am convinced, convinced that is why through all the ups and downs in Abraham's life, that when God calls him in Genesis 22 to do the impossible, to sacrifice his son, Abraham could trust God. He could believe God with the impossible. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 will say, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he, um, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, it turns out Abraham was right. I mean, what he believed was true. And although God didn't end up needing to raise Isaac from the dead because he provides a, a sacrifice for Isaac, you know what? God would end up raising from the dead another of Abraham's offspring. God's only son, Jesus. The ultimate sacrifice for Isaac the ultimate substitute for all of us who would become sons of Abraham, who's the father of us all because we share in the faith of a God who brings dead things to life, speaks things that aren't into existence. So what did he believe? What was it that Abraham believed as Paul is going to apply that to us? Look in verse 23. But, it, but the words, it was counted to him. It was reckoned to him. They weren't written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And here's what we're called to believe. It'll be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Out of death he brings life. Jesus was raised from the dead. In verse 25, who was Jesus? He was delivered up for our trespasses. Delivered for your sins. He became your sin. And because of that, he became the, the object of God's wrath. That's what he means in Romans 3, the end, where he says he is the propitiation of by His blood for our sins. All the wrath that we deserve, Jesus takes. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but He turns around and takes it and puts it all on Jesus so that all that Jesus is, He can turn and put on to us. And then He says at the end of 25, and He was raised for our justification. After three Days, dead in a grave, he was raised for our justification to make us right with God. And at his death, he cried out, it is finished. There was nothing left to be done. And at his resurrection, there's the evidence that death is defeated, 
Darkness is not one. Sin no longer has victory. You no longer are in slavery. You've been set free. Jesus' resurrection is the proof that he makes all things new. It's the promise that there's everlasting life to come. It is the promise that while he's gone to prepare a place for you, he'll come again and receive you unto himself, that where he is, you'll be also. And it's the promise, as Jude says, that Jesus is able to keep you from stumbling. And he's able to present you, which means he's able to stand you up blameless and holy and perfect before the presence of the glory of God. You know how he ends it? With joy. I'm glad that as the New Testament records Abraham, it forgets his failures, remembers his faith. So that'll be how it is with us. That's how God sees us. When He sees you, those who by faith have trusted Jesus, you know what He sees? He sees Jesus. Some of you find that hard this morning, I know. You're in a place where life circumstances, the whole world around you, whether it is through things that are pressing in on you, whether it is through suffering, whether it has come about from your own sin, Everything around you is contrary to the fact that God is good and He loves you and He can be trusted. Reminds me of when my kids were little and we used to take them to the pediatrician and they'd have to go and they'd get shots. And the pediatricians, they try really hard. They have suckers at the front and you know, they don't want kids to be terrified to come, but there are times when you have to march your child in there and out of love in the midst of things they don't understand and things that you can't explain to them. You have to set them in a place of enduring a suffering for their own good. And so you sit there and you're holding your child and the nurse comes in with a needle about that long. And you hold your child, their head's on your shoulder, and all of a sudden, the needle goes in, and life has been turned upside down. And you as a parent, you hold your child, and you say, just trust me. I know this doesn't seem like I love you, but I love you. Will you trust me? And one writer said, the supreme way we worship God is not to work for Him. Not in the things we do for Him. But to trust what He has done. To believe that He's faithful and to cling to that belief despite all the opposition and circumstances and suffering and personal failures to the contrary. That we believe He will fulfill His promises. What do you believe this morning? Are you trusting Him? You're still trying to work it out yourself. I invite you this morning by faith to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. And know this morning what it is to be declared righteous by God.